Welcome to Gospel in Life. If someone asked you what the main story of the Bible is, what would you say? Today, Tim Keller is preaching through the central storyline of the Bible, what went wrong with the human race, what God has done to rescue us through Christ, and how God means to restore the world. We're glad you're listening with us. Tonight's scripture comes from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 12 through 26. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? This is the word of the Lord. We're trying to trace out the storyline of the entire Bible, and... We started in Genesis where we learn what's wrong with the human race, and then we've gone now to Romans 1 to 4 where we're learning uh, what Paul says God has done about it through Jesus Christ. And we've been going through Romans, and here at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul does a turnaround. It's so surprising and shocking that if I begin to, I don't even have to introduce too much introduction here, I will start to explain it and it'll draw us right in. 
Please see, however, this chapter talks about three things. The failure of, your re- failure of religion because of the terrible beauty of the law and therefore the need for a regenerated new heart. The failure of religion because of the terrible beauty of the law and therefore the need for a regenerate new heart. First, the failure of religion. Now, Paul starts this chapter by saying, you therefore have no excuse, you who sit there passing judgment on someone else, for when you judge others, you're condemning yourself because you do the same things. Now, this only makes sense if you go back and see what was in chapter one, right? Because the same things refers to chapter one. And if you remember... Paul's been talking about Gentiles, pagans, idol worshipers, worshiping, bowing down to figures of wood and stone and and metal, Uh, sexual orgies. That's all been in, you know, Romans 1. And all of a sudden, Paul turns and says, hey, you out there listening, sitting in judgment, you do the same thing. Because, see, Paul knew that this letter was going to be read. This letter would have been read out loud to the Roman congregation. And who was in the Roman congregation? Gentile Christian converts and Jewish Christian converts. Now, who would have been out there sitting thinking, oh yeah, those pagans, those orgies, that bowing down to worship, that, to idols, ugh, that's just awful. And who would have been sitting there condemning? Who would have been sitting there passing judgment on all that? It would have been the Jewish Christians But now keep this in mind, in this case, Paul is actually speaking to people uh, who essentially represent anyone who's religious, anyone who has tried very hard not to be pagans, not to have orgies, not to bow down to, uh, you know, little figures of wood and stone. Uh, He says, hey, you people out there, you people who all of your lives have been trying to obey the Bible, all of your lives have been relying on on, on obedience to the law and feeling pretty good about it. I obey the biblical law. You out there, when you condemn those pagans, you condemn yourself because you do the same things. See, it's very surprising. And how could that be? How could he say, he said, we're talking about bowing down to idols and orgies and all. Now, how could he turn to the the good Bible-believing people who've been trying to obey the Bible all their lives and say, you out there, smug people sitting around there saying, yes, that's awful, that stuff's awful. You condemn yourself because you do the same things. How could that be? Well, if you go down a little deeper into the text, he actually talks about it. In verse 21, he says, uh, and 22, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing, but don't you steal? You say people shouldn't commit adultery, but don't you commit adultery? Now, at that point, the reason he's saying don't, you know, uh, you condemn yourself, he's talking to moral people, and he says, though you say publicly you don't commit adultery, a lot of you do commit adultery. And any moral community, any church, any synagogue, any moral community is going to have hypocrites in it, people who say this is what I believe, but in private they're doing the opposite. And so that's partly why he's able to say, hey, you religious people, you Bible-believing, Bible-obeying people, looking at all these awful pagans out there, you know, rolling in the, in the streets, you know, together in their drunkenness and their orgies, and you're feeling superior to me. You do the same thing, and some of it is hypocrisy. But that's not all he's saying here, because then he says, you who abhor idols, don't you rob temples? 
Now, he's talking to Jewish Christian believers, as you can see from the paragraph, top of the paragraph. And one of, this is completely inexplicable at first sight because there is absolutely no record of Jews running a kind of, you know, uh, you know, that at night they would go out to temples and rob temples and, and sell the, the idols on the black market. Is that what he's talking about? There's absolutely no evidence that Jews did anything like that. What in the world is he talking about? And the answer is he must be talking metaphorically. And by the way, he hints uh, uh, at that in verse 5, because when he says to them, uh, up in verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, and this is something you can never tell by looking at it in, in English, but he's using two Greek words that in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, were always associated with idolaters. And uh, what he's actually saying is this, you're religious and you're obeying the Ten Commandments, and externally it looks like you're complying with all the rules and regulation, but though you may not have idols of the hand, you have idols of the heart. You may not have idols that you can pick up and move around, but you've got idols in your heart. You abhor idols, and yet essentially you're no better than the idolaters because though you're obedient, the thing you really live for, the things that really give you meaning in life, the things that you really are worshiping are career or achievement or power, and therefore you stand condemned. Now, how can he really say this? that the good Bible-believing people are every bit as condemned, every bit as lost as the Gentiles and the pagans. How can he say that? Well, we'll get to that under point two. But first, I'd like to stop, and I want you to think about the amazing point one. <laughs> because this is what he's saying. He's saying something that will show you, if we think about it, the unity of the Bible and the uniqueness of the gospel. Unity of the Bible, by that I mean this. Remember, if you were here in the fall, we talked about Jesus' great parable, Luke 15, of the prodigal son. We spent six weeks going through that parable. And in the parable, Jesus gives us a father with two sons, a younger brother who loves sex with prostitutes and takes away all the father's money and squanders it. He's materialistic. He's licentious. He's disobedient to the father. But then he's got a second son and the older brother is very obedient and very compliant to the father and obeys everything the father says. And yet the point of the parable is they're both lost. They're both alienated from the father and they both need salvation. That's Jesus. But now you have Paul. And Paul is giving his greatest exposition of the, of the gospel. And he's saying exactly the same thing because in Romans 1, he's talking about younger brothers. He's talking about how they're condemned. He's talking about how they're lost. Bowing down to idols of the hand, see? You know, rolling around in drunkenness and sex. Okay, sin. The kind of sin everybody thinks of as sin. But now he turns to Romans 2 and he says, you, you elder brothers... You people who are trying so hard to be good and you think God owes you a good life because you're so good, you are every bit as lost. You're every bit as in need of salvation. Isn't that amazing? Paul's saying exactly the same thing that Jesus was saying. You see the unity of the Bible? But also, let me, let me show you how unique the gospel is. For, for Paul to be saying, you good people, condemned. You bad people, condemned. You're all lost. You moral people, you immoral people, you're all lost. You, um, in the 1970s was this enormous bestseller, as some of you may have heard of. It's actually kind of passed into the, into the, you know, the, the language a little bit. A book by Thomas Harris called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was a little self-help book. It was on the top of the New York Times bestseller list for two years. You know, I'm okay, you're okay. 
And in the 1990s, um, a, a, a woman named Wendy Kaminer wrote a devastating critique of the self-help movement, a devastating critique of it. And she, the name of her book was, um, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. And it was, it's a tremendous critique. And basically, uh, she, she shows how narcissistic the whole idea was. She says, how in the world can you say, I'm okay, you're okay, and this is mental health. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And yet, out there in the world, there's all the, the, the blood of the innocent crying out from the ground for justice. There's genocide, there's terrorism, there's all this awful stuff, she says. And how in the world can you say it's the sign of mental health to go out into the world and say, everybody's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. She says, that's silly. And she says, that's narcissism. And she, she just she hilariously deconstructed it. But, you know, 10 years later, after she really showed how silly it is to say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, she came back with another book that showed she was a bit in a bind. Because her whole point was, hey, with all the injustice, with all the, the innocent blood crying out from the ground for justice, how can you say everybody's okay? But then she came back about 10 years later with another book in which she was very critical of what she called the hard right. Because she saw a lot of people saying, yeah, there's evil out there, and we've got to bring back the death penalty, and we've got to go to war. And she suddenly saw all these people saying, I'm okay, and the rest of you are no way okay. In fact, that was the subtitle of her book. Uh, according to the New York Times, gave it the book a subtitle, I'm okay, and you're nowhere near okay. And she says, the trouble with that, she says, okay. I said, you know, she says, right. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. That was, that was narcissistic. That's narcissism. But to say, I'm okay, and I have the truth, and you all are evil, and I'm going to punish you, that's how you get death camps. That's how you get, I'm the superior race, you're the inferior race. I'm the superior person, you're the inferior person. And she says, that's moralism, and that's as bad as narcissism. Narcissism is, we're all okay, you're okay, I'm okay. And moralism is, I'm okay, and you're not okay. Well, now, wait a minute. So... She was just saying, I'm okay, everybody's okay. That's narcissism, but then moralism's bad, so now what's left? Well, there's, there's masochism. <laughs> you know, I'm not okay and everybody else is. And, of course, that's not right. Well, what's left? In the 1970s, uh, a minister who's now passed away, um, and a, a great teacher, a Bible teacher named John Gerstner, uh, was speaking, and he referenced the book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. And he says, well, what's the, what, how does that compare to the message of the Bible? And then he told a story. And it was about the fact that he and his wife were on a trip to Asia. They were actually in Kashmir. And at one point, they went on an excursion, and they went in, on excursion in a little boat. And it was he and his wife and a boatman who didn't know much English and his grandson. And on their way back from the excursion, as they were starting to near shore, they actually bumped another boat. And when they bumped the boat, there was some water, a fair amount of water kind of splashed in and got everybody wet up to the knees. And the boatman started getting very, very agitated, very agitated. And John Gerstner said, you know, okay, it's a little bit of water. So, and so he, he said, it's all right, we're okay. Don't get upset, we're okay, we're okay. But then a couple minutes later, the man was still getting even more agitated and John was thinking, he's very superior. He says, you know, this poor man either has an ego problem or he, you know. And he says, don't worry. We're okay. We're okay. But then finally, as they got almost to the dock, 
He got really agitated. And John, John Gerstner says, we're okay, we're okay. And the man looked up at him and said, you not okay, I not okay, pushed him out of the boat onto the dock, threw his grandson, jumped out onto the dock, and at that minute the boat was sucked down into the water and uh, came up about six boats to the right, you know, on the other side. Uh, it turned out that there'd been a hole in the hull. The boatman had seen it. John Gerstner had not seen it. And uh, if he'd stayed in there one more second, they would have gone down with it. Okay. And Gerstner said, you know, I realize that's the message of the Bible. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Do <laughs> you realize what this means? Not the moralism of saying, I'm okay and you're no way okay. Not the narcissism that says, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. Not when there's injustice out there in the world. And not the dysfunctionality, the masochism of saying, oh, I'm not okay and everybody else is. No. What the Bible says is we're all sinners. We're all lost. Nobody has the right to look down at anybody else. We're all in trouble. We're all alienated from God. No one has the right to be trampling upon or exploiting anybody else. We all need God. I'm not okay. You're not okay. And if you don't know that, you're going to go to the bottom. And that's, that's what's so unique about the gospel. There really isn't any other position like that. And it's the right one. Now, why is it that religious people stand condemned? The reason is because, according to Paul, because of the terrible beauty of the law. And what we see here, when Paul talks about the fact that judgment is going to be according to the law, he shows us why nobody can stand in the judgment, no matter how religious and good you are. He shows us both the inwardness and the intuitiveness of the law. Now, here, let me give it to you here briefly. First of all, the inwardness. Remember how I mentioned in verse 1, Paul actually says to the religious people, you condemn all those Gentiles and those pagans out there for all those, but you do the same. Uh, it says, you who pass judgment, do, look, look, it says, do the same things. Now, what are the things? Well, it's the things that are not on the page. They're listed in the, the last verses of chapter one. He made a list of sins. And then he says, you religious people, you do the same things. Now, what was that list? Well, here's some of the things on the list. Evil, greed, and depravity, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossip, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And if you look carefully, you'll see that almost all of these are not behavior, but inner attitudes of the heart. Greed, envy, malice. Insolent, by the way, that's the Greek word hubris. Have you ever heard of that word? <laughs> see, arrogant. Heartless, meaning not able to put yourself in other people's shoes. Ruthless, you know, obviously meaning exploitative. Now, here's what Paul is doing, and this is very important. Paul does what Jesus does. When we read the law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, when we read the law, we, because we're trying to justify ourselves, we actually read it just the surface. We read it only about the external behaviors. We see only the external behaviors, and when you go away from the law of God in the Bible, you can feel like, eh, I'm not so bad. What Paul does and what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is they do what we all should do. The law of God is getting at a kind of person, a kind of heart. You need to actually, when you read the law, you need to be reading through it because the law of God is actually an outline of the kind of beautiful character, a kind of incredibly beautiful heart that we should have. And the law of God is getting at it. And it is absolutely wrong of us to read the law in the most self-justifying way. Oh, I don't kill, you know. 
that's one, that's one law I'm not breaking. When you get to the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus does exactly what Paul does here. What does he do? For example, listen. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount actually expounds the Ten Commandments, but shows the kind of heart and the kind of spirit the commandment's getting after. So first of all, Jesus says this. Here, I'll just give you one case. He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, anyone who looks at another person and says, Raka, has broken this commandment. Well, what's Raka mean? Does it mean you fool, you imbecile? Is it an insult? No, it's actually a word that means nobody. It means you, you nothing, you nobody. And what Jesus is saying is, if you look at any other human being and feel like this person isn't important, this person, in fact, if you, if you can barely pay attention to them because they're, no, they're nobody, if you look down your nose at anyone and disdain them or are indifferent to them or don't treat them with importance, he says, that's like breaking the commandment. Well, how could that be? How could that be like murder for crying out loud? You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, murder's a tree. Trees grow from acorns. At least oak trees do. <laughs> okay. All right, well, well, what is the acorn? What is the seed of the tree? Well, the seed, what, what does murder start with? Superiority hubris, arrogance, a disdain, a contempt, a treating a person not as a person but as a thing, looking down, using people. He says the only difference between a murderer and you, if, unless you welcome every human being that comes into your life, every human being that is presented to you, unless you treat that person as infinitely valuable, unless you treat every person as a person of infinite value and worth, uh, if you just disdain certain people, ignore certain people, just can hard, you know, don't even care about certain people. He says, that's a seed. The only difference between you and a murderer is the murderer's seed has been watered and fertilized. And therefore, the commandment of God is getting after someone who cherishes people, cherishes every person. Even the persons that the world considers unimportant of no consequence, you treat them as if they're kings and queens. That's a kind of heart. Jesus says that the word of God is trying, that the law of God is trying to get after. Or then he goes through all the, you know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? You should be so honest that you don't ever have to swear an oath. He says every yes and every no, every interaction should be as honest as if you were, had sworn on a stack of Bibles in a courtroom. Then he says you should be so loving that if someone wrongs you, you don't just refrain from revenge. But you forgive them in your heart, and even when you go and confront them, and even when you go and seek justice, you do it with no ill will at all, filled with love in your heart for your enemy. He says you should be so generous to the poor that you give and give and give and give, and you don't even care if you get any thanks. That's all in the Sermon on the Mount. He says you should be so trusting of God that you don't worry no matter what the circumstances. Most Christians, even pastors, struggle to talk about their faith in a way that applies the power of the gospel to change lives, especially in our skeptical culture. Tim Keller's book, Preaching, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism, is a guide for anyone who wants to become more effective in communicating about their faith, pastors and laypeople alike. Drawing on his years of experience, Dr. Keller will help you share your faith in a more engaging, passionate, and compassionate way from the pulpit or in the coffee shop. 
Preaching is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of Christ's love with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com slash give. That's gospelandlife.com slash give. Now here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. Now, some years ago, a woman who was teaching literature at a, at a university, not locally, but a university, uh, decided to have all of her students read the Sermon on the Mount. And mo- none of them had, <clears throat> and half of them hadn't even heard of it. So it was all fresh for them. So they read it, and they all hated it. They absolutely hated it. it was, this is a typical comment that she got in, in the, re- the response papers. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel that I had to be perfect. And they all hated it. They said, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. Nobody can be like that. Nobody can be like that. It's ridiculous. And then she said, but then she said, that's our question. She listened to it. And then she asked them a question. Isn't this, aren't these though the kind of people you want around you? Don't you want people who are so loving that they don't resent and they're never indifferent? That they're so generous that they're always grateful? Uh, Aren't these the kind of people you want around you? Aren't, aren't these the kinds of things that you want in other people and you ask, you demand of other people? And they all get very quiet. In other words, I'm very angry if you hold me to this standard. On the other hand, actually, I hold everybody else to this standard and therefore you're condemned from your own mouth. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Because the law of God, if you learn how to read it, is after a kind of person, a kind of heart, a life of absolute beauty. Not just the external behavior, but, but the heart, the motivation, the attitude. And when we see that, and we see how we really demand it of other people, we refuse to, to, to demand it of ourselves, we're condemned. See, it's not just the inwardness that Paul talks about here. You notice how, you know what is so amazing about this middle, this middle section? Where he says, you are condemned from your own mouth. And then down in verse 12, he says, all, you, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. Indeed, the Gentiles who do not have the law show that they do understand something of the law and they will be held accountable for that. What is that? Well, some years ago, a man named Francis Schaeffer summed this up beautifully and said, you know what Romans 2 is about? Romans 2 is about the invisible tape recorder. Romans 2 is saying that even though you don't know it, there is an invisible tape recorder that God's put around everybody's neck. No, no, you can't feel it or see it, so don't try. It's there. Romans 2 says it's there. And on Judgment Day, all of a sudden, you're going to appear before God, and, you're going to, and a lot of people are going to say, uh, uh, I didn't even know you existed. Wait a minute, you can't hold me responsible for the law of God? Or, or other people are going to say, oh, I've heard of the Bible, I've never read the Bible. You can't hold me responsible for this law? I mean, I didn't realize that the God of the Bible is the real God. Okay, but here you are. But you can't hold me responsible. You can't judge me for something I didn't believe in or... And then God's going to do, what he's going to, he's, what he's, going to, he's going to reach around the back and he's going to unclasp and he's going to get off your invisible tape recorder and it'll become visible. And you'll say, I didn't see that there. And he says, no, you couldn't have felt it. It was invisible. <laughs> and then he says, I want you to know that I'm the, I'm the fairest judge you could possibly imagine. I'm not going to judge you according to the Bible because you didn't know the Bible. I'm not going to judge you according to Christ because you'd never heard of Christ. If it's, I'm going to judge you by your own words because this tape recorder only record throughout your life whenever you said to someone else you ought you should see this tape recorder has only recorded your standards for the people around you 
And therefore, I'm not going to judge you by anything other than the standards by which you judge people your entire life. And nobody in the history of the world will be able to stand in the judgment day because you're not going to even be able to stand before your own words, before your own standards. And therefore, we're all lost. We are all absolutely lost. Well, where, where, okay, where's the hope? Is there any hope? And the, of course, the answer is yes. The failure of religion, because of the, the, uh, the terrible beauty of the law, means now at the very end that there's a need for a new heart. Suddenly at the end, Paul begins to talk about circumcision. And he says, this is almost the end of the chapter, he says, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, it has no value. Uh, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, they will be regarded as though they were circumcised, were they not? And then he goes on, and it's not printed, but let me read you the end. Then Paul says at the end of the chapter, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now, here's what Paul is saying. He is saying, you know, you religious people, and of course in this case, the Bible-believing religious people were Jewish believer, Christians. He says, you know, all of your life, you've been trying to obey the law of God. And circumcision was a sign of being a Jew who was trying to obey the law of God. But he says, there's some, what you really need is circumcision of the heart. What you really need is a new heart. Not obedience outwardly. You need to be, have a regenerated heart or you will never, ever do what the law requires. Now, why does he bring up circumcision? What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. When God entered into a relationship with Abraham, uh, that was the first time God showed up and said to a, a, a man and his family, I want to have a personal, intimate covenant relationship with you. And as a sign of that relationship, he says to Abraham, I want you to be circumcised. Now, the circumcision was a sign of the relationship the way baptism is a sign of being, you know, in the church. Why, though, circumcision? I think most people understand baptism, you know, kind of like death and rebirth and the spirit. And all. But what was the symbolism of circumcision? Now, I don't want you to think about it too long. <laughs> but that's the point. Why did God choose circumcision? as a sign of this intimate covenant relationship he had with Abraham. He said, I want you to walk blamelessly before me. And if you walk blamelessly before me, if you follow my covenant, I will bless you. But, he said, if you disobey the covenant, if you enter into a covenant with me and then you go your own way and you disobey me, then you'll be cut off, he said. From your people, you'll be cut off from the Lord. You'll be cut off from me. That was the, that's the natural punishment. So well, you know what circumcision was? In those days, you didn't sign a contract to bind a contract. You acted out the curse. In other words, when a person would enter into a covenant with someone else, he might pick up some sand and he might drop it on his head and say, if I don't do everything I'm saying I will do today, if I disobey the words that I, the covenant that I've just made you today, May I be as this, as this dust. Or a person would cut an animal in half and walk between the pieces and say, if I don't do absolutely everything that I have said today in this contract, may I be cut into pieces myself. 
And what God was saying to Abraham was, if you want to enter into a relationship with me, you need to be circumcised. And that means you are admitting that if we dis- you disobey the, the covenant, you'll be cut off. Well, here's my question. Did Abraham really obey the covenant? Did Isaac really obey the covenant? Did Jacob? Has anybody ever obeyed the covenant? Has anyone ever walked before God blamelessly? That's the covenant. Well, then why in the world? No, of course not. Well, then why does God have any people at all? Why is there anybody called the people of God? Why is there anybody that God says, you are my people and I'm your God? How could anybody be in a covenant relationship with God? And the answer is, in Colossians 2, there's a little verse that almost always when you go by it, if you're reading through Colossians, it's one of those verses that you read and you say, what was that about? And then you just go on. You know, I'll ask Tim about it. I'll ask Tim about it someday, but right now I don't get it. But in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross. And then he says, in him you were circumcised. And he's talking to Gentiles, by the way, who weren't literally circumcised. He says, in him you were circumcised and with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but in the circumcision of Christ. In him you were circumcised, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but in the circumcision of Christ. Now here's what he's saying. On the cross, Jesus was cut off. That's why he calls it a circumcision. On the cross, Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, I can't see you. I can't feel you. Where are you? Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. Why? He was getting what circumcision represented. He was being cut off. He was going under the knife. It was bloody. It was violent. He was getting the curse that we deserve because we can't stand in the judgment. We can't stand before the law. But that's not all. It doesn't just say he was circumcised on the cross. It says, in him, you were circumcised. Not a circumcision made with hands, he says, because the Gentiles weren't. You've got a new heart. You've got new life. Why? Because you're circumcised in Christ. What does that mean? It means that now you stand in him in this way. When you read the law properly, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, and you see what the law is getting after, the love, the peace, the generosity, the integrity that it wants. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I hate this, I hate this. You know, I'll never be like this. Instead, realize what that is describing. You know, it's, it's describing a person. Whenever you read the law of God and you see this incredible, perfect standard, you know, it's, it's describing Jesus. Don't be crushed by the standard. See the beauty of Jesus. And according to the Bible, when you believe in Jesus Christ and you give your life to, to him then all of your sins and what they deserved is transferred to him. He's cut off for you. And all of the beauty of his law-keeping, all the beauty of his life is transferred to you. And in Christ, we're told, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And once you understand that, it pricks the heart. You know, the idea of a circumcised heart is pretty weird. Quite a metaphor. It's, it's intimate and it's tender and it's scary. And what it means is your heart of stone begins to be a heart of flesh. And you have a new attitude toward the law. Because when you see that God 
sent his son to die so that the requirements of the law were fulfilled. You never look at the law of God and say, oh, I'm saved, so it doesn't really matter. The law is so important, so important, that Jesus died to fulfill the requirements of the law. So when you, you don't look at the law as a Christian and say, oh, it doesn't matter how I live because, after all, I'm not condemned. Jesus died because the law was so important, and so you try like crazy to live according to the standards of the law. And yet, when you fail... You don't get crushed with, with guilt. You're not crushed like, oh, what an awful person I am, because you know what he did for you. There's this paradoxical attitude toward the law. We're absolutely, fastidiously, diligently seeking to obey it and never crushed, never crushed into the ground by it, nor hopeless when we disobey it. We get back up on the horse. It's, a, it's fascinating. We're, so in other words, we're not, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. After all, we can live any way we want. Or, I'm not okay, everybody else is okay. Or, I'm okay, and you're not close to being okay. It's none of those things. I'm not okay, you're not okay, I'm no better than you. Yet in Jesus Christ, I'm a beauty when God sees me. I'm beautiful. And as a result, I don't judge anybody because God's the judge. When somebody wrongs me, I leave that to God and I forgive them. I don't even judge myself. Oh, how bad I am. No, I've been judged in Jesus. Don't you see that at the center of your life ought to be Jesus Christ, the judge of the earth, but the judge who was judged. If you bring into the center of your life the judge of all the earth who was judged in your place, you have both a healthy respect for moral absolutes You know that there's right and there's wrong. You know there's injustice. You know it's important to seek justice. You know it's important to be a good person and a morally upright person. But on the other hand, you are not judgmental toward people. You forgive people. You're not down on yourself, judging yourself when things go wrong. Oh, the uniqueness of the gospel, the uniqueness of a Christian. Bring into the middle of your life the judge who was judged in your place. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us the, uh, the bad news about Judgment Day, the bad news that no one can stand in the judgment, and the good news that your son Jesus Christ was circumcised for us on the cross. He was cut off for us so that now in him we have new hearts. And we thank you for all that. Oh, my word, Father, we thank you for it, and we ask would you please help us to live in accordance with it, to appropriate it, to have the joy and the poise and the power that would come with what we believe and what we know. So we ask that you would grant it for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Dr. Keller. If you were encouraged by this podcast, we invite you to consider becoming a Gospel and Life monthly partner. Your partnership helps more people access resources like this podcast. Just visit gospelandlife.com slash partner to learn more. This month's sermons were recorded in 2009 and 2016. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017 while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.